welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Eliza Jane Schaefer, and I'm a 20 here at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Assistant Professor Mia Costa. Um, she's a professor in the government department here. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Eliza. Thanks for having me. Um, so just to get started, um, can you give us a brief overview of your research, uh, your research interests, some of the findings, um, anything you find particularly compelling? The research that I'm working on right now is really focused on political representation in an era of contemporary uh polarization, because right now the U.S. is seeing a lot of polarization, not just on ideological lines, but also along lines of social identity. So um, one thing that I'm looking at is how are representatives using identity and partisanship and this sort of polarization to communicate with their constituents, because maybe that's what they think voters want to hear these days, since that's sort of the political culture uh, in the U.S. right now. Um, But one interesting thing I'm finding is that voters actually aren't motivated by representatives that invoke uh, identity appeals over uh, their policy interests. So Voters really just want representatives that are going to talk about the issues that matter to them. And even if they feel sort of polarized in an identity or partisan way in the mass public, that's not really what they want from representation, which is sort of one of the most important findings of my research. And how did you get interested in this line of research? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, um, I mean, I've always been sort of interested in how people relate to government, um, right? So I'm really interested in like what people think about government and how they participate in politics. Um, And really the main connection we have to government or at least to people in government is through our elected officials and through this sort of communication. So um, like in graduate school, I was really interested in inequalities of uh, legislative communication, meaning do representatives respond um, to different types of people um, unequally. So like, do they respond to their white constituents more than their African-American constituents? Do they respond more to men than to women, et cetera? And is inequality sort of um, perpetuated that way? So I think coming out of that type of work, I was really also just interested in, okay, well, how are they also using the content of this communication to sort of focus on certain types of ideas over others? And does that have implications for policy representation? Because we think representation on policy issues is really the most important thing. But with this new culture of polarization and other sort of factors um, that matter to people, are that, you know, are people, are politicians using sort of this type of communication in order to focus on other things? So I think that's kind of where my thinking was going um, and what brought me to that project. So you you talk about like polarization and like social identity appeals and congressional communications and then what that means for representation. Um, and I'm wondering if you could explain a little more like what you mean by representation. Like what is what is that? What is good representation? What is bad representation? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, there's no real right answer when it comes to what is good representation, right? Because one way to think about it is, okay, is good representation when our elected officials just do what we want, right? Like, do Mm -hmm. we just elect someone and then they just like do all the things we want them to do? Or is it they do what 
what they think is in our best interest, right? And sometimes that might mean going against what we think we want, right? Or going against, but that's kind of why we hire them, right? We can think of elected officials as people that we sort of hire to, to make those decisions for us. And so I think when I say things like, you know, the implications that this stuff has for representation, it's, it is kind of like an open question in terms of like, well, what does or an open normative question in terms of like, well, is this good for representation or bad? And I think that is one of the things to wrestle with is, you know, as a scholar of representation, I'm sort of always wrestling with the question of like, well, is it still good representation if it like results in things that like actually aren't good down the line, even though like this is what people want at the time, you know, and that's kind of a hard question. I mean, in general, like congressional communication has implications for representation because right it does affect how people feel that they are represented despite you know whatever however we want to answer the normative question of like what is good representation so if people feel like they're represented then that on its on its own actually does have implications for um like the health of democracy because people are going to be more likely to be like informed citizens or they're going to be more likely to, you know, um, be active or to vote or to like, you know, take care of their like fellow, right? Like someone that doesn't agree with them maybe, right? And that like leads to like good things. And when people feel like they're being um, represented by government, then it creates a more positive relationship between government and citizens. And that's really like a good thing, right? I mean, of course, we don't want to have a situation in which people are just like always pl- complacent with what's going on, but mm-hmm. we don't want the situation in which people just feel so disillusioned, so angry, so hostile all the time because they just disagree with people on the other side, right? And that's kind of when it can have those negative implications for representation, um, even if we're not really sure what good representation means. Um because everyone kind of can decide for themselves what that really means. So it's kind of like whether or not people feel like they have a connection to government or that like government's working for them. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of what I'm interested in. Like, I'm interested in like how people feel connected to government and whether they feel or or really just what people think about representation. But a lot Mm -hmm. of other representation scholars would say that doesn't matter at all, right? Like a lot of people would say it doesn't matter what people think about representation. It actually just matters whether people are represented Mm -hmm. in some formative, objective sense, right? But for me, that's not an objective question because – Again, like, what are our representatives there to do? Are they there to, to just do what we want them to? Or are they there to make decisions for them, uh, you know, by themselves for us, right? And so mm-hmm. for me, that is kind of where the interesting tension lays. But other people would just say, well, it doesn't matter what people think or what people want. It's just like, whatever, the you know, politicians decide is good, you know, and then that's what's good. Or it's whatever constituents decide is good, and that's what's good, right? But I sort of wrestle with that question because I am interested in like op- the opinion, like opinions and attitudes of the mass public. So if that's an area of mine that I'm focused on, then I'm interested what they think about representation and how that sort of affects then in turn how they you know, view their representatives and then how our representatives treat us also. When I read about like the topic of your talk, um, I was reminded of this email that I received from my congressman on April 8th, 
The subject line is China lied and people died. There you go. Uh, is that the kind of thing that you're that you're looking out for? Or I guess what would be like an example of language uh, that you would yeah. like count as like an appeal to social identity um, or like, like othering? Yeah, that's a really um, interesting example because I think in some respects that would be con- counted as like a sort of negative or very strongly, uh, you know, uncivil appeal because it's very mm-hmm. um, extreme, right? It's really painting a picture. Uh, China lied, people people died. Um, yeah. But since the focus is on a foreign nation, it's not clear whether that would count in my data set for um, for incivility, right? Because the type of incivility I'm really looking for would basically be language like that. But if the target was some was a you know someone in the U.S., like a, a member of another party, or President Trump, or another political leader, or certain members of various social groups, right? Because I actually saw a couple of examples that are like non-business owners, like don't know what they're talking about, you know, and that's kind of a weird example. It's like non-business owners, like it's very specific, but it's almost putting people into a group and denigrating them that way. Um, But other examples, I mean, honestly, a lot of this incivility stuff really is um, not almost always, but very often it's about members of the opposite party. So, you know, a Republican might write, on Twitter or in these newsletters, like Democrats are lying and they're corrupt and use extremely strong language. And, you know, this goes for both sides. Um, The Democrats use this language as well. And it's pretty frequent that this type of language is used in a partisan way and it's not necessarily in a social identity way. Although I've seen that too. Like I said, this like non-business owners or like non-parents I saw one. Very bizarre. It's like it's not saying us as parents. It's like non-parents. You know, it's like these are people Uh that aren't like us, you know. Do you think this line of research has implications for like scholars who study populism? Could this be seen as evidence of like a new or returning emphasis on populism in the United States? Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting. I haven't really thought about it in that way, but I, I actually think you're right because, um, you know, there is this sort of populist surge that we're seeing both with, you know, like the Bernie Sanders type of populist mm-hmm. and then the Donald Trump type of populist, right, where there's these really people-powered movements sort of against government inter- control, right? Um, and in a way, this is related because I think a lot of that type of polarization where people are really um, distrustful of the other side really does Mm -hmm. kind of come from a place sometimes of being disillusioned with people in power Um, and just feeling like, you know, that you, you know, if if you carry a certain uh, political identity, then you distrust people that have the uh, an opposite political identity, because it becomes Mm -hmm. so important um, in terms of how you think of yourself as a person, you know, so that's kind of the key part is, if, if you think of your partisanship or your political identity as saying something about who you are as a person, then there's an opportunity for that to grow that sort of hatred. And so I think, 
it's interesting that you bring up this sort of the you know populist ideals because I do think in a way it's related because both can sort of feed that like disillusionment or mistrust, um, but really with the goal of returning to something that feels um, like you have power to make change, right? And that's really the the point of it. Um, and I think so in a lot of ways, like those intentions are still there. Um, it's just sort of how we come to it that can be you know, not the healthiest for democracy. Um, Do you have any initial thoughts on how we got here? And if there's any hope for the future, can we return to civil policy focus, congressional communications? um, And like, what would what would make the difference? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. (laughs) I think, I mean, in my view, and from the evidence I've seen, I think a lot of it is elite driven. So that's to say it's, it's driven by our political leaders. Um, there's a lot of research that has shown that people really do adopt cues and signals from people in power or people that they trust, right? So if a member of your party or if someone that you support sort of endorses a value or is speaking in a certain way, then you sort of pick up on that, right? And that's not to say that like members of the mass public are just like sheep that don't know what they're doing and they're just following what people tell them. That's not to say that. It's just that this is how things work. Like we elect representatives because we want them to sort of work for us in that way. And so I think a lot of the um, reason for this sort of polarization, this form of polarization in the mass public is probably driven by, or at least um, kind of pushed along by, I don't know if that's where it started, but it's, it's certainly helped by, um, people in power sort of reinforcing that division. And so I think because that sort of helps fuel that flame, I think that would be the answer to return to, um, I guess a more normal, uh, you know, f- uh, focus on policy and partisanship, right? Because parties used to be just an, an end, a means to an end, right? So like we, people used to join parties to win elections and then to gain power so that they could do, um, you know, that they can achieve policy goals. Whereas now, since polarization is so driven by partisanship in and of itself, it's almost like people care about their party winning no matter what the policy goal is, right? It's like almost like your identity as a Democrat or Republican is like more important than like what you actually want to see happen in some ways. And that's not true for everyone, of course, but there's just a lot of evidence that show that like some of that is happening. So I think like, like, you know, your question is sort of how do we get back to sort of a focus on policy representation is it has to be driven by the folks that we elect. Um, I think the more and more that members of Congress or other uh, political leaders use language that is uh, fueling animosity or fueling this type of polarization, you know, people only pick up on that. And so I think really the solution has to be at the elite level. Um, Switching gears a little bit, I always like to ask our speakers about their experiences in college and their advice for college students and young people more broadly? The students that I teach now are just like unbelievably impressive and motivated and engaged. And that's really amazing. That's like, these are like the best type of students to teach. 
though, I mean, it's a, it's a two-sided coin though, of course, like it's really easy to burn out and to be overstressed and to take on too much. And so I would say that my advice to students now, especially at Dartmouth, and especially right now, while all of this other stuff is going on, which is like really scary and easy to, um, you know, really easy to sort of, um, uh, struggle to, or, or to have students struggle to deal with, of course, um, is just to kind of not take on too much, <laughs> um, d- dial back the ten, the temptation to overachieve all of the time, focus on learning and on education rather than grades, because in the long run, like, like I can't remember a grade I got in a single class in college. And, you know, and it's kind of like, if you know what you're interested in, that's great. You should pursue that. Um, mm-hmm. But also like, you know, take time to take care of yourself and to pursue other interests and hobbies. Because once you get out of college, like you're going to need the things that still keep you, you, because you're going to enter into the workforce. And especially students right now with everything going on, I mean, you're going to enter into a workforce that is like really complicated. (laughs) Our economy is really changing rapidly right now. And it's going to be really difficult, you know, and but it's okay. It's one of those things that like things come in waves and, you know, things always change, but, you know, make sure you still focus on, um, like the things outside of school. And so I know it's kind of crazy to hear a professor being like, don't focus on school. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) But I, you know, I just feel like, um, you know, at the end of the day, like, it's, it's important to keep you you because that is what makes your contribution to the world really useful, right? And so that's what you're in college for is to really figure out how you can contribute to society. But you can really only do that if you like take care of yourself and take care of your and focus on your family and make keeping your social community strong and, you know, find a hobby that has nothing to do with like your major and just, you know, like things like that are really important. And I feel like Dartmouth students in particular can always serve to be reminded of that a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this term has been a good reminder that exactly. I need things to do that are not <laughs> school or over. Exactly. I mean, this is, and this isn't a, a perfect opportunity for that. And of course, I mean, obviously what's happened, the global pandemic is, I mean, it's absolutely horrible. A lot of people are sick and dying and et cetera. I don't want to minimize that, but it's also like kind of amazing opportunity to turn inwards and kind of like focus on what's important and kind of strengthening resolve. Because I think we're all going to come out of this like stronger people than we were before, not to sound like really cheesy, but I kind of feel like that's what's going on right now. And, you know, it's really difficult, especially for young people nowadays, like needing to keep those they're, they're those ties, right? Like those social ties, like, right. Keep in touch with your friends, keep in touch with your family. Like it's really hard to do right now. Um, but like now's kind of an opportunity to like reinforce some of those other skills that don't have to do with academia. <laughs> yeah. um, have you picked up any fun hobbies? Oh, for sure. I started watercolor painting. Oh, something I'm like not really a creative type. Although I come from a family of artists, I like my my whole family are like creative types and have worked in art fields, and not me. But I don't know. I just like I feel like. It, with all of this happening, I like needed some sort of like creative outlet to also uh-huh. like 
you know, that's a little bit Zen too. And I've, I try, I was thinking of maybe picking up knitting cause I've heard that that can be very meditative. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I don't have those supplies. And so I, like a, a few weeks ago I was at Target. It was my last run to a place like that. I would not recommend trying to go anywhere like that now. But, and I picked up literally like an $8 watercolor set and I, it has been wonderful. So that is the new hobby that I've picked up during quarantine. That's, that's a good one. That is a good one. <laughs> creative outlets are good. Right, exactly. Um, and it's been a good distraction too, right? Because, you know, we have a lot of time right now. And even if you're taking classes online or if I'm teaching classes online, it's like we still have a lot of time. And so it becomes mm-hmm. really easy to just work all the time, right? But mm-hmm. you need something that can like break that up and to, you know, get you out of that. And so I'm finding mm-hmm. it useful to do stuff like that so that I'm not just otherwise working all the time. <laughs> um, do you have anything else that you would like to add to finish us off? You know, in general, uh, I'm really glad I was able to share kind of just a small piece of this project I'm working on. I'll say that the other piece of it that I'm looking at is um, really how um, other forms, so not just congressional communication in newsletters, but also congressional communication. I mentioned briefly before um, campaign ads, and I'm also looking at social media posts. And so Mm -hmm. The last thing I'll end on is just there's so many different ways that we actually engage with our representatives. Um, And then a lot of times we won't even realize it, right? But a lot of our information about politics, of course, comes from the media, but sometimes it comes from our uh, political leaders themselves. And so that's, you know, I'm kind of trying to look in a, you, you know, use a wide net to kind of catch a lot of these different ways that we hear from our political leaders. And yeah, I mean, so it'll it'll be interesting. We'll see what I find. <laughs> yeah, there are like a lot of other ways that leaders communicate with their constituents. And I wonder if they're still communicating about policy, but just like via a different platform. Right, exactly. And it's kind of, you know, it's impossible to capture it all, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. to measure it all. But, but yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a lot of different ways that people receive information um, from representatives or even just from like other uh, political sources. And I think that is probably also correlated with like partisanship, right? Like mm-hmm. maybe certain or, or other social identities. And that's kind of what makes it tricky is because p- certain types of people might receive information from different sources based on these things that I'm also studying, like based on certain identities, right? And that and that's kind of an interesting thing to think that, okay, well, certain types of groups might receive information on Twitter, but like other types of groups won't, right? And certain types of people are going to be signed up to receive congressional newsletters, but other types of people won't. And mm-hmm. that can affect the strategic choices that members of Congress are making, right? If they know they're only talking to a certain subset of constituents, that mm-hmm. might affect what they say. That is all for today's episode of Rocky Talk. Thanks again to Professor Costa and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you'll join us for our next episode, and if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.